Good morning to you all. It's wonderful to be here. My wife and I uh, enjoy coming here. We were last here about, about seven years ago. My, how time flies. Uh, we usually bring our son with us, uh, but he's up in our home in Livermore, and I bring you greetings from our home church of uh, Gateway Church in Livermore, California. Our pastor, Mike Kelly, was here several years ago as well, I, I recall, uh, sharing with you the Word of God as well, many, many, uh, several years ago. So Shirley and I are thankful to be in your midst again, and I want to say before we open up the Word of God once more publicly, thank you for your faithful partnership in the gospel work that we had the privilege to be a part of for 20 years in the Far East. You were there from the very beginning until we returned uh, last, last June, uh, one year ago now. We've been back in the States, and we're trying to reacclimate by God's grace to life here, this foreign country to us, and God is grace, gracious to us, and we're getting along. It's nice to be in the warm fellowship of our home church and uh, sister churches like yours. I want to thank Pastor Lynn for allowing me to come and to personally uh, give you thanks again for your partnership in the foreign mission work that God had called us to. I want to also uh, thank Pastor for giving me this opportunity to share God's Word. Let's go ahead and take a, our Bibles in hand here or your devices and to turn to John 4. We're going to consider a passage here in Christ's dealing with the Samaritan woman. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 42 of John 4. John 4, 7 through 42. And there are many beautiful things to draw out of this passage. But I want to concentrate on what Christ is saying and how he interacts with this woman. Basically, I want to see us to see from the Lord Jesus' own example lessons and principles that we can use for our personal lives, but particularly in our church evangelism, domestic evangelism, as well as foreign missions work. But let me read that passage uh, to you, starting in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then? Do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus said, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, 
I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said well that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me, all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the, young, of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, or for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As I shared in the first hour, we spent about 20 years of our lives there in the Far East, And 18 of those years was in a place there in the Far East where, geographically speaking, and the topography there, about 80% of the land was mountainous. And in that province where we lived, that in those mountainous regions, hardworking farmers would terrace 
the hillsides and they would plant rice on those hillsides and they would reap every year a wonderful harvest of rice on those hillsides. It's a, quite a wonder to see those hardworking and clever farmers doing that and reaping a harvest. They're reaping a harvest of rice in a very unlikely place. And in this passage that we've considered this morning, we're going to consider today how Jesus and his disciples reap a spiritual gospel harvest in a very unlikely place. So let's look at three things today. The first is Jesus sows the gospel. Secondly, Jesus inspires his disciples. And then thirdly, Jesus reaps the harvest. I should say Jesus and his disciples reap the harvest. So first off, let's take a look at verses 7 through 30 of this passage in John 4. Jesus sows the gospel. Notice that Jesus initiates a conversation with a Samaritan woman. We see here that Jesus was willing to go against cultural and ethnic taboos of his time in order to minister the gospel to a needy soul. You see, Jewish rabbinic tradition strictly cautioned a man from even speaking with a woman in general. And John tells us that Jesus spoke alone to this woman of Samaria. She being alone, without other women drawing water, with her at the well, probably indicated that she was shunned from her society, that they knew of her immorality, and she was ostracized. For Jesus to speak with her alone in this Jewish culture, in that cultural melu, as it were, in that background, would have been seen as inappropriately flirting with a woman. Look at the reaction of the, God, uh, of the disciples here in verse 27. It's recorded, And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. They marveled as he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And then to make things even more socially awkward in that situation and culturally awkward, to say the least, Jesus was engaging in conversation not only with a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Who are the Samaritans? Recall with me that in John 4, verse 9, John wrote, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, it captures the historic and racial, racial animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans lived in the area between the Sea of Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south. They lived in that intermediate, that middle section. And this animosity goes back to the exile of the northern tribes of Israel as recorded in 2 Kings 17, 24 through 41. Read that when you have time, and you'll understand the background a little bit better. And what you'll find is that after the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes and took them captive, they colonized Samaria with people from other lands that they had previously conquered. And they hired a Jewish priest to teach those colonists the Jewish religion. And they did this more out of superstition than true devotion to Yahweh of Israel. 
They thought their colonists would prosper better in the land if the colonists worshipped the God, lowercase g, of that land, Yahweh. And in time, these colonists mixed together both Jewish as well as old pagan beliefs and practices. In missions, we call this mixing together of orthodox true religion from the Bible with pagan practices. We call this syncretism. And that's what happened in Samaria. There was some Jewish Old Testament teaching that they received, these colonists, but then they brought in and imported their idolatry and their superstitions and mixed them together. It was syncretism, and it's a very dangerous, dangerous blend. And so the Jews despised the Samaritans as not true ethnic and religious Israelites. That's the backdrop of why John says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And for Jesus to speak with a woman, as well as a Samaritan, it was crossing, he was crossing these social and cultural taboos out of a burden for this person's heart. And here, brothers and sisters, in our evangelism, domestically, and in our foreign missions, we have to be willing to cross cultural and ethnic boundaries as Jesus did here, in order to reach souls. When Jesus gave the church the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he said, make disciples of who? All the nations. Not just your nation, but all the nations. The phrase all the nations does not mean political nation states geographically in a political sense or political countries but rather it means people groups. People groups that are different ethnically, culturally, linguistically from us. Jesus had and he wants us to have a burden for all the peoples of this earth. Jesus wants his church to have their eyes on making disciples through the gospel of all the ethnically different peoples of the world. That's what he's saying in the Great Commission. And that's what he's demonstrating here in John 4. Do we have this all people groups mentality that Jesus wants his church to have? Are we growing in it? When he gives us opportunities to engage in evangelism and missions that crosses cultures, do we enter into it with joy and a sense of I'm doing the right thing? I trust we are. And I believe we, this church is, as you've sent us and other missionaries out, we are an extension to you. And so I want to encourage you to continue to have that burden. It's part of our spiritual DNA. We can build a case even from Acts 2 when the Spirit came down and empowered the church. What were some of the first activities of the church when they were empowered with the power of the, of the Holy Spirit there in Jerusalem? They preached, of course, in incredible, uh, miraculous tongues, but that were foreign languages. And they spoke of the wonderful things about Jesus and his acts. There at the very birth of the church, there by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was enabling, empowering the church to express its spiritual DNA. We are meant to grow, go cross-cultural with the gospel of Christ. And so when we think about growing, or rather going cross-culturally, 
in our areas, in our state, in our country, I think we all realize that the demographics of our country is changing and it's more easy, it's more these opportunities of grow, going cross-culturally with the gospel are more readily available to do so. The demographics in our country are changing. It's been, been, uh, the demographics have been changing for many decades. And one of the reasons for this is the phenomenal increase in international migration in our country and around the world. The countries where uh, we belong or where we serve for 20 years, we see the same dynamics happening. International migration. The former UN General Secretary, Secretary Kofi Annan said in 2006, quote, international migration is one of the greatest issues of this century. We have entered a new era of mobility, unquote. And now we can either, as Christians, see this international migration that's happening as a danger, as a threat to what we're used to, or we can see it as a wonderful opportunity from a kingdom standpoint. Missiologist Michael Pocock wrote, quote, Around the world, Christians are waking up to the reality that the massive movement of peoples in migration presents an un." Unprecedented opportunity for spreading the gospel, unquote. And Scott Arbiter, the president of World Relief, perhaps the largest evangelical organization that helps refugees as well as immigrants, has said this, quote, God is up to something dramatic. The mass migration that now brings us into contact with people from every tribe and tongue and nation is both a profound privilege and a daunting responsibility. A profound privilege and a daunting responsibility, unquote. Brothers and sisters, I hope we see these opportunities to meet with people who are of a different people group than we are as an opportunity for the gospel. And I trust you are seeing it and framing it from that percent, uh, biblical standpoint. We have, as it were, the nations at our doorstep. And though you sent us and sponsored us for 20 years to cross geographical boundaries to reach the world, in a very real sense, missions has come to our very front doors with the neighbors next door. I live, we live in the Tri-Valley area of Northern California on the East Bay of San Francisco. And before we left for the Far East, our city was pretty stable demographically. But in the past 20 years, I've been tracking the demographics. It's radically changed. Of the three cities in our valley area, our tri-valley area, one city in its demographic mix has completely flipped. It's now 50% non-Caucasian and the other percent Caucasian. Another one, it's a majority, 60%, people from Asia primarily are part of that uh, makeup in that population. And Caucasian is uh, a minority. Our city, uh, there's a, sh a similar shift. Not as dramatic, but the shift is happening. And we are having to face, how are we going to see this? Is it a challenge to what we're used to, or is it an opportunity 
to take advantage of, as it were, giving, having opportunities to cross cultures with the gospel. And we're seeking to see it in the latter light. How are we responding to this? Perhaps some of you here today are not in Christ. All that I've said so far has been addressed to the church and Christians here in this church so far about evangelism, from, from the example of Christ's evangelism here and his, as it were, cross-cultural work. But if you're here today and you're not in Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, I think what we've read so far and considered so far in this passage has relevance for you as well. Perhaps you are like this Samaritan woman, feeling ostracized in your family, perhaps, in your workplace. Perhaps you even feel ostracized when you come to church, a church like this. You feel like an outcast. But look, my friend, at how Jesus deals with those who are outcasts, like this Samaritan woman. Jesus is willing to speak kindly to this outcast Samaritan woman. And my friend here, Jesus, the same Jesus through the gospel, and I trust through us who are Christians, has a compassionate heart to you as well. If you're feeling outcast, know that there's a Savior who's fit for you as well, who's compassionate and willing to enter into your life and to get into your grief and to, to save you. Perhaps you feel as a non-Christian that you're alienated from God in your right. The Bible tells us that we're alienated from God because of our sins. And yet the hope is that in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary, I know that's a big word, he took the place of sinners like you and me, friend, is basically what the cross is about. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, that the suffering of Christ upon the cross, his suffering would be the suffering that you would have and I would have received for our sins. But he would take our, he's taken our place upon the cross and received the punishment of our sins. But it's not automatically applied to you. You have to trust him. And you have to repent of your sin and turn to him. And Jesus is doing that in this text here. He's moving this Samaritan woman to get her eyes off plain water and onto him. Let's walk through the rest of this text here that we've been considering, this passage, and see how he does that. Jesus was willing to cross all these cultural and ethnic traditions in order to sow the seed of the gospel into the heart of a Samaritan woman. It's the gospel seed about himself. Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He's moving her to understand that he's speaking about himself. Look in verse 10. Jesus raises the topic about the living water. She wants to talk about water? Okay, Jesus is saying, let's talk about water, but I'm going to put a twist to it. He's going to talk about a living water. Jesus engages the woman with a topic that is very much upon her heart, water. Yet it's obvious to us that he is not speaking of physical water, but of spiritual water. In the Gospel of John, the metaphor of living water is used elsewhere, particularly in John 7, verses 38 and 39. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this metaphor, and it means the wonderful, abounding, overflowing life of the Spirit 
that the Spirit brings to a saved person's life. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, part of the wonderful benefit of being made right with God through Jesus Christ is that the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Jesus, takes up residence in our souls. And there's an overflowing of joy and of peace and of, of acceptance, of cleansing by the work of Christ upon that cross. And it's a wonderful thing. This is what he's seeking to get the woman to consider. And yet the woman's thinking is fixated on her horizontal concern, physical water. So when Jesus speaks about living water, she responds in verse 15, give me this water. She wants for herself. So she doesn't have, she wants physical water so she doesn't have to continue to go to this well to draw this water. But Jesus was gently leading her in the conversation to think of her soul's vertical relationship with God. This living water is a water springing up to eternal life. And later in John 17, verse 3, Jesus defines this everlasting life as the believer entering into an intimate relationship with God such that they truly know him. That's eternal life. That's the living water that Jesus is seeking to get this Samaritan woman to understand. And brothers and sisters, in our evangelism domestically and in our missions work, we should tell those that we share the gospel with about the abundant relational blessings that come from being a disciple of Christ, the living water that the Spirit brings. That's what Jesus is doing in his cross-cultural work here. He's not shy or backwards to talk about that blessing in his evangelism of a renewed relationship with God that's like living water, and so should we. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit takes up residence in us, and the Spirit blesses us with a sense of peace with God. The Spirit also brings us joy that's in Jesus Christ. He gives us a sense of God's fatherly and unending love for us. We sang about that several times. Did you notice in the songs today about his steadfast love, his loving kindness? And to appreciate that deeply, not only in our intellectual portion of our heart, but in our feeling portion of our hearts. That comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's part and parcel of the blessing of this living water, of the Spirit working in us. The Spirit gives us liberty from the fear of the devil and evil spirits, which is a very big need and a very big concern of those that we minister to in Asia. Liberty from demonic oppression. And the Spirit also delivers us from the fear of death. And on and on we could go. And to you, my unbelieving friend here, consider the blessings of this living water, of the Spirit that would come to you if you put your faith in Christ. You can be, as well, from another perspective, my, my friend here today, when you think about the Samaritan woman, think about how she was fixated on her horizontal concerns. Think about how you're concerned with oftentimes just your horizontal needs 
making enough money to pay your bills, making enough money so that you can enjoy some leisure and pleasure, making enough so that you can have retirement. All of these things are well and good. Or maybe you're thinking horizontally and you're consumed with achieving uh, fame or accomplishment in this project and to having status in that project. But Jesus here, as he works with the Samaritan woman and as he works with your own soul friend today, Jesus in the gospel is gently leading her and you to get your eyes to the more important vertical relationship that you have with God. Yes, you've got horizontal concerns. I do too. We all do. But get your eyes up and look at that vertical relationship between you and God. And Jesus said, what shall it profit a man? In another place he says, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? You need to put your trust in Christ. You need to get your relationship vertically right with God first through the work that Christ did. Not through seeking to clean yourself up or to do good works or to follow the Ten Commandments so that God will see that you've earned your merit. But no, looking to the free gift of Christ and the free offer of the gospel in Jesus. Looking to him in faith that you might be made right with God. And so we see Christ working with her in this way and applying that to your life as well, my friend. Get your eyes up and get your vertical relationship right with God through Christ. And then moving on in the text, let's take a look at verses 16 and 18. Jesus, the revealer of hearts. Jesus truly wants to lead this woman to drink of the springs of everlasting life. But in order to have this benefit, he needs to bring up her sexual sins. He needs to bring to light to her conscience the sin that she's been committing. And in order to have this living water of eternal life that the spring, that the Spirit brings, she must confess and turn from her sins. And so too in our evangelism, brothers and sisters, and our cross-cultural missions work, we have to bring up sin with those that we're sharing Christ with. Like Jesus, in order for those to whom we minister to receive the good news of forgiveness of sins through Christ, we must first tell them about the bad news of their broken relationship because of their sins. Their broken relationships vertically first with God and certainly the broken relationships horizontally that results from their sins. In some cultures, we need to paint this picture of the bad news not only in terms of legal guilt, which is biblical to do, of course. But in some cultures, we need to be attuned to the relational honor-shame cultures that some cultures like from Asia, many cultures in Asia, are more attuned not so much to legal guilt, but more to honor-shame. Both are taught in the Bible. The gospel is presented in both, from both perspectives. For instance, in some honor-shame uh, cultures, the parable of the prodigal son with its message of broken relationship and honor and shame resonates more in their hearts. They understand reconciliation relationally than a legal framework. And yet they also need to hear those things about legal sin and guilt as well. And my friend, if you're here today 
and not a disciple of Christ or a follower of Jesus, then know you still have the guilt and the shame of your guilt upon you. And this holy God, who is the judge of the the whole earth, has an issue with you. But the hope is that in Jesus Christ, if you but put your trust in Jesus and turn from your sinful ways to follow Jesus and to look to him, God will wipe away the guilt of your sins. And many of us in this place can testify of the life-transforming work of Christ through his gospel when he opened our eyes to the bad news of our hearts, but the good news of his gospel, of how he could save us and put us in a right standing with him. And you too, if you but look to Christ today, can be put in a right father-child relationship with the true and the living God. It's your choice. Choose well today. And then moving on in this passage, looking at verses 19 through 24, Jesus is also seen as the restorer of true worship. The Samaritans you see, and this Samaritan woman, their problem with worship was this. They felt it was an issue of the place of worship. She is asking, Jesus, where is the proper place of worship? Is it in Jerusalem or is it up north here in Samaria? But Jesus transcends her thinking, which he often does, doesn't he? He transcends her thinking and he says, she's asking the wrong question. It's not a question of the proper place of worship, but a question of the proper condition and the content of worship. According to Jesus here in John, true worship consists of spirit and of truth. Spirit, that is, true worshipers are people who are born again by the Spirit. And it's of truth. True worship is of truth. That is, true worship is focused on Jesus Christ, who is the truth, John 14, 6. And so too in our evangelism and in our missions work and those missionaries that we support, we need to ask ourselves, are we and are they helping the local believers in new churches plant churches to focus on worship that comes from regenerate believers and who are focused on Jesus? Or are we and are they, those missionaries that we support, are they teaching them that true worship must have similar cultural wrappings as our home church in the West before it can be considered acceptable worship. It's not about place. It's about content. It's about the condition of the heart is what Jesus is getting at here in verses 19 through 24 as the restorer of true worship. And then in verses 25 and 26, Jesus clearly articulates that he is the Christ. The woman seems to pick up on Jesus' meaning when he talked about truth in worship. She seems to know that he's talking about Messiah or Christ. And so she begins to speak with him about Messiah and the Christ. Think about the shift that's happened in the conversation that Jesus is having with her. Jesus has succeeded in bringing her focus from physical water to move away from there and away from the controversy of the place of worship. 
And he has brought her in her focus to where he has wanted the focus to be all along, on him, on his person. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the long-expected Savior of the world. And brothers and sisters, again, in our domestic evangelism and in our foreign missions work, we too need to have an approach that Jesus had here, a contextualized approach. That is, contextualized, I need to describe what I'm meaning here. I mean the process of taking the biblical contents of the Christian message and packaging it in a way that increases the likelihood that our audience understands that message. And Jesus is contextualizing, not changing the gospel message, but contextualizing it by wanting to talk about the thing that the Samaritan woman wanted to talk about was water. He used that as a bridge. You want to talk about water? Let's talk about water. But I'm going to bring your attention vertically and see the living waters that comes to you if you come to faith in Messiah. Jesus contextualized his message to the Samaritan woman by discussing this topic of interest, of cool, refreshing water. He spoke in a way that she could understand And then he moved her to spiritual things. He moved her from speaking about water to Christ. And so contextualizing starts with understanding something of the audience's cultural, historical, and language. And Paul also uh, did this in Acts 17, didn't he? When he spoke in terms that the philosophers in Athens could understand we need to learn about the various peoples around us and to understand who they are in our communities, how they think, and maybe even learn a little bit of their language. And this is going to help us better contextualize the gospel message to them. This will help them to better understand the gospel. Sometimes when reaching peoples from cultures that are more concrete and relational, we need to demonstrate the gospel in in physical ways of helping them. In the Far East, we were working with a people that were different culturally from us, not only linguistically, but the way they perceived the world. They were very concrete, relational, and it was good for us to preach the gospel to them, but we needed to make sure we demonstrated it to them in concrete ways, helping them in things that were really concerning them. Some of the college students wanted to learn English, so we taught them English and helped them with their English. Farmers, like one that I talked about in the uh, Sunday school hour, he was concerned and consumed with the heart problem that his son had. And so you all helped us, and other churches helped us gather some money together and to give this boy an operation. And through that bridging, that contextualizing, that coming down to where they were thinking and living, They were open to hear the gospel and Christ saved that farmer and his wife. And so we see that from Jesus' example uh, here as well. Jesus is contextualizing his message. And in our evangelism and our missions work, we must keep Jesus as the focus of our message. In Acts 1.8, Jesus sent his disciples out on mission with those Uh, These words, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus calls the church to be witnesses of him. We are to tell people about Jesus, birth, life, teaching, miracles, death, resurrection, glorification, and his return. Our gospel needs to be full of truth about Jesus and who he is and his work and what he has done. And then as we move on into verses 27 and 30, notice the response of the men in the village. They heard and they all started to march over to Jesus. And keep this in mind as we consider the rest of this passage. The people, particularly the men from the village, are moving out to where Jesus and his disciples are at. And so our first point has been, Jesus sows the gospel. But more briefly, point two is that Jesus inspires his disciples. Verses 31 and 38. The disciples are fixated on the horizontal. In verse 8, We are told the disciples left Jesus for a time to buy food for the team. And they have been thinking about this horizontal concern for a while, food and drink. And they've been doing their duty to care for Jesus and the team. And then in verse 27, the disciples re-enter the scene and they've been thinking for several hours horizontally, food and drink. And so when Jesus begins to speak to them about, I have food to eat of which you do not know. They almost comically respond, you know, huh? Did someone give them something to eat? You can see they were just locked into their horizontal perspective. And then Jesus goes on kindly and graciously to explain that his meaning of food is spiritual food, of doing the redemptive work that the Father had sent him to do. And we too, brothers and sisters, sometimes are like the disciples, aren't we? We love the Lord Jesus, we're sharing Christ, but sometimes we can get so fixated on the horizontal, just like themselves. And we're rightly busy with all of our horizontal duties of earning money and having money so we can clothe ourselves and our family and feed ourselves and our family, to put away a little bit for later on and taking care of our aged parents and so on and so forth. And yet, sometimes we can get so consumed with just the horizontal. And like the disciples, we can run the danger of getting so fixated on the horizontal that we lose sight of the vertical, heavenly, redemptive work of the kingdom of God. And so their example brings us back to some of the reality that we experience as well. And one of the things Jesus does repeatedly in his teachings, not only here but in other parts, is to challenge his, challenge his disciples to not be so fixated on the horizontal, but to place more importance on the vertical work of the kingdom of God. We see that here. We see that in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Or... We see Jesus speaking in Luke 10 to Martha. Martha, Martha, you're so worried and troubled about so many things. And he commends her sister who is sitting at his feet learning. And so too, as we look here in this mini passage of verses 27 and 30, we see from the disciples that they are urged as well to have a higher 
kingdom aspiration. Listen to Jesus and what he says in verse 35. And this is really important. Jesus says to his horizontally focused disciples, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Lift up your eyes. Look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. The disciples were about to enter into a spiritual harvest right there in Samaria, in an unlikely place. They were going to reap a gospel harvest with Jesus. It was a place that the disciples themselves had never sown any seed of the gospel. The Old Testament prophets sowed gospel seed in Samaria. Centuries before, John the Baptist sowed gospel seed in Samaria. And now Jesus was sowing gospel seed there in the story that we're reading here. And now the disciples have the blessing to enter into those who have gone before them to reap now a gospel harvest. Jesus said to them, lift up your eyes, guys. I think he wanted them literally to do that, to lift up their eyes. Because in verse 30, we're told that all the men of the city were coming out and marching out of Samaria, or at least of that village, to the place where Jesus and his disciples were. I really believe that Jesus was wanting them to get their eyes up. You know, if I were a cinematographer, I would probably shoot that scene. If I were making a, 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 a film of this particular scene, I would have Jesus here in the foreground addressing his disciples who were facing him, and the village of the Samaritan woman is in the background, and all the men are walking towards them. A cloud of dust is rising from that dusty road. And Jesus is looking at those men, that harvest that's coming, and Jesus points to them. Look at that harvest that's coming. Get your, guy, get your eyes up. And he forces his disciples to look at the men who are coming, who are coming to be harvested through the gospel. These are the words of our Lord Jesus that I want us to have ringing in our ears tonight or today. Lift up your eyes to the fields, brothers and sisters, for they are already white for harvest. Do Jesus' words grip us? Or are we like the disciples, so preoccupied on the horizontal concerns of life? What harvest of souls are right is right before us? And Jesus is saying to us, lift up your eyes. Could it be that these immigrants that are coming to our shores are the harvest that God wants us to reap using the gospel. Certainly, those of our neighbors that are with us, that aren't immigrants, that are just needy sinners, we need to be concerned for their souls. Perhaps those in the community colleges nearby who are from different countries that are here, who are longing to have some type of friends, local friends, you know, I read a statistic once of a lot of uh, foreign students who come to our country who do well, who assimilate, and many of them who do come to Christ. It's because people of this country, and particularly Christians, will reach out to them and befriend them and help them in their English, help them to go to Walmart and know how to shop Walmart. They're befriended, and their hearts are longing 
for friendships like that. And they're oftentimes then touched by the kind considerations of the local Christians that they're willing to hear the gospel. Conversely, there have been studies that many foreign students that come feel so isolated. Many just return home, they can't stand living alone uh, and feeling so isolated. Some will hunker down and finish their degrees and so forth, but when you ask them, how was your time in the U.S.? They say it was terrible. And oftentimes they'll bring up because they were so lonely. No one reached out to them. They'd love to go into an American home. What opportunities is God giving to us here in our place where we reside and work? Well, we've looked at the first two points. Jesus sows the gospel and Jesus inspires his disciples. And finally, thirdly, Jesus reaps, along with his disciples, the harvest. Verses 39 through 42. The despised, mixed-blood, Jewish, Gentile, Samaritans are coming to Christ. Imagine what that would have been like. Imagine yourself as a disciple at that scene. All these former enemies, the despised Samaritans, before your very eyes, God is awakening them and their dead souls and giving them a new saving faith in Jesus Christ. How incredible! That must have been like. And you hear them, these Samaritans who are now being converted, you hear them saying things like this, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow. Praise God. Praise God. Incredible. Jesus is reaping and his disciples, a harvest of souls in a very unlikely place there in Samaria. In our hearts, brothers and sisters, who are our Samaritans? Who are our Samaritans? People of a certain place? People of a certain social class? People of a certain ethnicity? People who don't look like us? Could God be reaping a harvest of souls to Jesus among our Samaritans, and he wants us to be part of it. Brothers and sisters, as we've worked out there in the foreign field for 20 years, one of the blessings that we receive for our own selves as a family is to rub shoulders with other missionaries, other Christian missionaries from other parts of the world who had different people groups in their gospel crosshairs, as it were. We met many missionaries who were missionaries to the Muslim world. And they've shared with us stories that at first when I heard them, I thought, exaggerations. But I'll listen to these stories. Of God moving upon Muslim people and moving in their hearts in incredible ways to put them in contact with Christians, to cross cultural bounds. They were like those encounters that we read in the book of Acts where Peter is told by the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, to go and not to be backwards and not to feel awkward to talk to this centurion, Cornelius, about the gospel. And God doing an incredible thing to make Peter willing to make that cult cultural cross-cultural leap to go 
and to speak with this Gentile centurion and his household and to share the gospel. And he did and reaped a wonderful harvest. Things are happening like that even in the Muslim world. There are books that are seeking to document this incredible work that's happening now in many rooms, as it were, of Islam. In Indonesia, in Iran even. Things that the, the press, the secular press that we have here in the West are not going to report on. You'll get reports like this in missionary journals and missionary websites of these incredible things and books that are being written by mission. Uh, a missiologist, about this incredible phenomenon. Folks that we would think are like our Samaritans. Wow, these guys attacked us, you know, if you're from the West. And yet God is having mercy and saving many of them. Incredible stories I wish I had time to share uh, with you. And so Christ is doing a work among them. And we need to ask ourselves, who's next door to us that is like a Samaritan that Christ might want to touch through us with the gospel? Well, in conclusion, we've taken a look at Jesus sowing the gospel, Jesus inspiring his disciples, and Jesus reaping the harvest. It's no coincidence that Jesus has his disciples with him to witness and experience this harvest of souls among the Samaritans. It's no mistake that he's doing this. He's training them. He's preparing them for something that's going to happen in just a few years. Jesus is getting them prepared because the church was going to go on a special mission, and we're still on it, to make disciples of all the nations. He wanted them to have a first-hand account of a cross-cultural experience that, that would reap gospel, a wonderful gospel harvest. They would wet, he would whet their appetite to know that he would be with them in their worldwide mission of salvation. And later in a few years, as I mentioned before, Jesus would say these words in Acts 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. May our hearts look to always partner with Jesus on his mission of making disciples of the nation. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending the first missionary, Jesus Christ, to this God-forsaken, as it were, place, this fallen world of earth. We thank you for Jesus coming and serving you and accomplishing the work that you set him out to do. We bless your name. And Father, it's a wonder that you would Call your church with all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, all of our insecurities to partner with you and the Son and the Spirit on your worldwide mission of making disciples of the nations. Thank you. Help us to continue to be on mission with Jesus. May all glory go to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.